Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. We're in this same place where Israel is about to enter the land. They have come to this location some 38 years earlier and rebelled against God and wandered around until all of that generation has passed away. The younger generation, some of them did see the miracles Moses is referring to, but they were so young, it's not on the forefront of their mind. And then there is another whole portion of this generation who didn't even see it. So now Moses is recounting all of these things to them and refreshing their understanding of God's word and the commandments and the history of Israel, good and bad, and what the Lord has promised. Here, verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 9, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to the heavens. Many of us have heard what I have declared regarding this a few times now. Forgive me for the redundancy, but I think it very necessary for us to understand that crossing the Jordan River does not symbolize death. The church has embraced that idea from centuries ago. You know, looked over Jordan. What did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Uh, that is not accurate to the scripture. Because the people of Israel were captives in Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea into the wandering in the wilderness of sin until all of the flesh had died. And then they came to the Jordan River and they were supposed to cross and they refused. They refused to cross the river. Then coming back to the river, they cross over and now they're going to have to attack their enemies. Crossing the Jordan River is the symbol of the victorious Christian life. Being filled with the Spirit and having the strength to overcome those immovable obstacles, right? You enter the presence of the Lord, there aren't going to be any giants to conquer. There aren't going to be fortified cities you have to overcome. That's here and now in this world. And we need to derive from these passages the encouragement to live in the strength that the Lord is providing us. And we also need to learn from these passages the weakness of our flesh in not believing the Lord for those strengths. So as we move forward, make sure our hearts and minds are aligned with that thought and that process. Go in, dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities greater and fortified up to the heavens, a people great and tall, the descendants of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? And they were giants, and we know that historically that there were giants. Uh, we have strong evidence all over the world of giant races of people. Uh, I mentioned when we were together last there at Mount Ararat, uh, they have discovered human femur bones so from the knee to the hip, greater than three feet in length. That's a really huge human being that had that femur bone. You know, iron bed frames that are 15 feet long. Door frames inside housing structures 
or the top of the door frame 12 and 15 feet high, the door latch at six feet in the air. You know, so the human race was different. The, the whole world was different. We've talked about that many times. Uh, you know, I always mention, you know, the fossilized uh, dragonflies we found with 52-inch wingspans, asparagus ferns that were 15 feet tall. Uh, you know, the world was a different place in the ancient times. So, uh, you know, here, the, the fact that it mentions giants, you shouldn't think of that as a fairy tale. And I think that Christianity does a great disservice to the younger generation when we talk about Bible stories. Right. I think we should you know, be very careful to talk about the facts of the scripture and the facts of creation and the things that are recorded here for us to understand. Therefore, verse three, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said. Quickly would probably more accurately mean suddenly. That as they attack each one of these situations, it is going to be abrupt. It's going to be cataclysmic. And their victory or their defeat will be known right away. Uh, we do see some defeats in the process. Uh, I, I think that the greatest defeat that Israel experiences in entering the land is that they never achieve conquering the entire territory as the Lord had promised them. That isn't because they weren't capable of it. It's because of the very things that he's going to warn them about in the coming chapters. They're going to get comfortable. They're going to cover certain distances. They're going to gain certain ground. They're going to have certain prosperities. And they're going to think within themselves, that's good enough. And that's essentially the spiritual picture for us. We were living in a certain level of sin previous to knowing the Lord. We surrender our lives to the Lord. He accomplishes a certain degree of victory, progress, and maturity, and we get comfortable. And we decide that's far enough. I've seen enough. I've accomplished enough. And we leave off the conquering. There's so much benefit to the process that goes unseen because of the compromise in the life of the believer. Verse 4. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness... The Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. He's going to make great contrast over and over again about the fact that these pagan nations that he's driving out before them are incredibly wicked. More than anything, they've become incredibly murderous. The uh, behavior, the idolatry, uh, the sinful things that they do, very troubling, very destructive to their nations, even to the surrounding nations that uh, occupy with them. But the thing that the Lord draws the line in the sand about is about the murderous nature of each of these nations. In particular, they all reach a point where they start killing their own children. 
Uh, it is, you know, often the parallel is made between the ancient nations and our modern nation. And the fact that we, as a nation, America, commit so much abortion. And it is very grievous to the Lord. You know, people have all kinds of different things that they point to. Uh, you know, you hear a lot from Christianity about homosexuality. Um, listen, it is a very grievous sin. People say, well, one sin is not worse than the other. Very true. But here's the thing. Uh, homosexuality brings a demise to a people that a lot of other sins do not. Because there's no procreation taking place. Men and women are not producing offspring, so the children aren't born and the nation does not continue to grow. It is a plan of our enemy to bring the demise to the nation. I'll deal with this subject one more time. Some of you guys are just like, Will is so repetitive. Why? Okay. There isn't a population problem on planet Earth. We hear that all the time. You know, I even say that, and immediately, you know, you don't get to see what I see. I'm up here. You see one face, one set of eyes. I look out there. I see a whole bunch of faces and eyes. And usually, as soon as I say that, not consciously, but there's usually a set of eyes that at least one rolls back in their head. There is no population. You can still, to this day, fit the entire population of planet Earth inside Texas. Did the math again? Every single person could have 1,268 square feet of their own. The planet's massive, absolutely huge. Those of you that have traveled through the Midwest know how big those cornfields are. Just miles and miles and miles of nothing. No one's living there, right? Even all the waste places where no human being could live, right? Get rid of those. Spread the human population out over what is inhabitable. There's a tremendous amount of territory on planet Earth. Massive amounts. The three locations of concentration where it is a real issue are New York, Hong Kong, and Los Angeles. And it isn't even too many people living there. It's too many cars is what we're dealing with. In those settings, God told Adam and Eve, go and fill the earth and subdue it, right? Bring it under your mastery and your control. Adam and Eve had at least four children after Cain and Abel. I don't know if you've ever studied that, right? Because it says that they had sons, that's plural, and daughters, that's plural, has to have been at least two So you have four children enough. They live to be almost a thousand years old. If Adam and Eve had four children and each of their children had just four children, just four, they probably had dozens, right? How many people in this room uh, come from families where you had six, eight, ten, right? A few, some, right? (laughs) My eighth grade teacher had 15 siblings, all from the same mother, right? He was one of 16, right? They lived on a massive farm. You needed farm hands. Why hire them? Just create them. You know what I'm saying? Huge, hundreds of acres, 
a farm and they worked the whole farm. And as they gained more children, they expanded the farm. There was a time where this sort of mentality was the entirety of civilization. We've, we've entered into what the postmodern society refers to as the sexual revolution of the 60s. And now you have a great host of children who are unwanted, right? If, if a family has three children, they're like, whoa, wow, good for you, you know? If you have four children, they're like, oh, well, you know, there, there is this thing called birth control. If you have five or six kids, you're, you're probably a Mennonite, you know what I'm saying? Is the way they look at things. This is the way the world treats this. God wanted families, and he wanted godly families. He wanted our offspring to go and share our faith with the world. And these people have begun to kill off their own children. They worship particularly Molech. And when their children are born, as soon as they're born, they take them to the worship center of Molech. He's this metal statue. He has outstretched arms. His stomach is hollow. His head is uh, stretched towards the heavens like a chimney. And they build a fire inside his hollow body. And when he's incandescent red and they're all rhythmically pounding drums and chanting, they throw the unwanted child into the scalding hot hands of Molech. We say horrendous, hideous. The number one way abortion is committed in America to this day is saline injection. So a massive, overwhelmingly powerful saline solution is injected right into the womb and that child is burned to death inside the womb. And it writhes in just as much pain as any child thrown into the hands of Molech. And we act like, oh, we're so much more civilized than them. We've created a more sterile method. We don't go see the witch doctor as part of our worship, but our methods are as grisly as theirs. And we are still, right now, killing 1.3 million children every single year. Given the depletion of the family size, right? Six and eight children being the norm down to 1.2 children per family. And the abortion rate, that is why your social security system is not working the way it's supposed to. Because not enough people entering the workforce to pay for the retirement of those that are stepping out of the workforce. We're mutilating our own society. When you read the Old Testament telling us, those God speaking said, those who hate me love death. We're witnessing it. We're, we're witnessing the demise of our own country. How about this? You have to have 2.1 children born, born to every family in order to maintain the population of your culture because... The death rate takes that 1% away. Two people need to result in two people in order for the culture just to remain the same. No culture has ever recovered 
from a birth rate of 1.8 or lower. 1.8 or lower, that country reaches its demise within 20 years. It's impossible to recover from a birth rate lower than 1.6 per family. Because by the time you start the procreation process, even in an elevated scale, the demise of the culture is happening so rapidly that you won't recover. We're currently at 1.8, this nation, right now. No country's ever recovered from that before. It's not impossible, but no country's ever done it. People look around and say, is this the end of America? Let me assure you, it is. Right? That's not like some doomsayer statement. This is just the state of where we are as a nation. Right? When you're reading Psalm chapter 1, and it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Right? That term blessed right, means happy, fulfilled, content, complete. It doesn't just mean like, Somebody mystically pronounced a blessing upon you. It means a real tangible fulfillment. Blessed, follow me in this. Blessed is the man, the, the woman, the society that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You know how long we as a nation have been following the counsel of the ungodly? Very long time. Right? End of the 1800s, really. People go, oh, well, 1930, does anybody... Have you studied the Roaring Twenties and seen what this nation, the debauchery of this nation and where it began? Long ago, this nation rejected God. Long ago, this nation rejected God. Think about how patient God was with the nation of Israel, right? 490 years, we've made it quite a ways, but we have long thumbed our noses at God. And we've gotten more and more flagrant about it as the years have passed. Denying the God who created this nation. We're, we're in a terrible state. We're in a very terrible state as a nation. People say, oh, well, you're just talking doom and gloom. There's still hope, right? For those that will surrender themselves to God. We can be the remnant. We can be the revival. We can be the awakening of our culture. But you have to surrender yourself to the Lord. You personally have to surrender yourself to the Lord. Churches are full of people that want entertainment. That just want somebody to perform for them. This, this Bible sharp as any two-edged sword, needs to reach full into your soul and carve away the wickedness of the flesh. It has to have free access that way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But what, in contrast, his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in his law, in his word, he will meditate day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season. That doesn't mean once a year, you guys. What that is saying is you will be continuously fruitful for the Lord if you find yourself planted in his word. If not, then you go the way of the wicked, right? Burned like the chaff, thrown away and done away with. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. 
we now read, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. I hear a lot of these people in Christianity talking like, you know, we're going to overthrow the wickedness of our nation. If you look at the character and the conduct of the church, it's nearly identical to that of the world. You know, statistically, this is horrifying. I mentioned abortion. Every other vice, right? Drunkenness in the world, in the church, identical. How about that? Drug addiction in the world, in the church, identical. Divorce rate in the church, in the world, identical. Abortion, slightly higher in the church. How about that? Because adultery is the same rate as the world, but there is a rate of conviction and shame associated in the faith that causes more people within the faith to have abortions than those in the world. What right do we have to say as an organization, we're going to overthrow the wickedness of the world, right? Here the Lord is saying to the nation of Israel, make no mistake. I am not driving these people out because you guys are awesome. That's the Will Cass international version right there. I'm driving them out because of their wickedness. And he's going to tell them later, you follow suit, you're going to experience the same thing. Right? When he says repeatedly, if you'll obey me, you'll live long in the land, he's not talking about longevity of life. He's literally saying, I'll let you stay in my land. You go the way of these other cultures, I'll drive you out of my land the same way that I'm driving these people out of the land before you right now watch and witness what's happening around us. Seven, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Listen, right? We move through their history ahead of us and you come to the point where they throw off God and say enough of it. We got to have a king. We can't be just governed by an unseen God. All of these nations around us think that we're foolish. We want to be like the other nations, and you need to give us a king. It's an absolutely foolish request, right? God has taken care of them perfectly up until that point, even correcting them through the judges that he brings into their midst, not letting them go astray. They throw off his hand and they demand a king. And God says, fine, what would you like in a king? And essentially their description is, we want somebody that's awesome. Give us a guy that's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, really muscular, suave, 
cool, we want awesome. Just flip through the pages of GQ magazine. And when you find the sexiest man alive, it's offensive to people when you say that in the church. But that's the truth of the matter. And they said, that's our king right there. Right? And he even starts out in a way that wins people's hearts over in that he's the most humble amongst them. Right? Those of us that know the story know that when they go to inaugurate the man, he's hiding in the luggage. Doesn't want to be brought out. And they bring him out and he kicks the sand and says, gosh, golly, thanks, you know. And as soon as he has the scepter in his hand, the tyranny begins. And he flakes out with the power. Even to the point where he's making declarations without knowing it, where he's saying, I will murder my own child. Right? If anyone defies my orders and eats food of this day, he'll be put to death. And they're like, ah, your son just ate. He's a crackpot. God sends him to the Anakim we just read about, right? The Amalekites, and says, you got to kill all of them or they're going to kill you. Fast forward, the last Anakim, right? Because Saul doesn't kill the Anakim, as God said. Go all the way to the end of the line, and who do you have? Herod, who sends the soldiers into Bethlehem and kills all the children under the age of two years old. Right? Look around your family. Think about the two-year-olds in your life. Having been slaughtered, but imagine the grief that would bring to your heart. Right? Psychopath. He doesn't do it. And there, the prophet Samuel is, makes the statement, comes to him and confronts him and says two things. Rebellion is as the state of witchcraft. Stubbornness is equal to idolatry. Listen, here we are, 4th of July. And there's a thing in this nation where we venerate rebellion. We look at stubbornness and we, we act like that is, that's an American virtue. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a liability. It's a profound liability. The lack of submission. The lack of obedience. Rebellion and stubbornness are not good character qualities. Steadfastness, okay, we like that. That works well, right? When you can't be moved off from your godly position and you stand your ground, that's different. When you're defending the innocent and the weak, that's different. Rebellion is recognizing the authority and saying, I refuse to submit to that. Won't do that. Recognizing the godly authority and refusing... I just need to clarify for a minute, right? Because we've been through this thing with our governors, particularly the governor of this state, has said you cannot meet together and have church. Listen, I don't know how if you're aware of how far this went, right? In this state, the governor literally said, if you open your doors and you bring in state workers so that they set up tables and you have an uncontrolled number of people 
that are filling out paperwork to receive benefits of unemployment from the state, you can have as many people in your building as you want. But for instance, if it turns 12 o'clock noon and you have a church service there, everybody has to get out. In this building right here, a little over 6,000 square feet, we would have been allowed to have seven people in this building. A level of discrimination. You can bring all the people you want in here to fill out paperwork for unemployment. But if you change it to a church service, immediately everybody has to leave. Discrimination. Total discrimination against our faith. So much so that the governor is being sued, even right now, for discriminating against our faith. It's necessary to stand up against tyranny. That's what brought independence and freedom not only to this nation but the entire world the entire world recognized that it's a good thing and incorporated that in their own nations freedom and democracy allowing that consider the book of acts right as john and peter are being beaten and told you can no longer preach in Jesus' name. You can gather together at the temple. You can gather together at Home Depot. But you cannot preach in Jesus' name. And they said, well, you're going to have to def decide for yourself whether we should obey men or God. But as for us, we're going to serve God. And they went right back to where they were and began preaching again. You have to find the balance you have to find the balance, right? Because if I obey men that are telling me to rebel against God, right? God says, Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints as some have taught. Now I'm rebelling against God. I'm not going to obey you if you tell me to rebel against God. I can't. So especially now, we have to learn this balance here. These are rebelling against God in the natural order, and they're destroying the world that is around them. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, so the Lord was angry enough with you to have you destroyed. Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments, came down, and the people are engaged in the most grotesque sin. And Moses shatters the tablets there. In that moment of anger and reaction, the went up into the mountain, received the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you. Then I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights and neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God and on them all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Remember that the Lord had spoken to them all of these commandments, and they shook and trembled in fear in the camp because it was a resonating voice that shook the whole camp, and the mountain burned with fire, and the shit shook the earth. And they said, you go speak to God, and whatever he tells you, bring it back to us, and we'll do it. They didn't. They disobeyed. But this is the moment that's being referred to. It came to pass the end of 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets 
of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. Right? You guys that are parents know what this is about. When dad comes home and mom says, you will not believe what your kids did. Right? Come up here and talk to me, Moses. Okay, you're going to have to go down quick because you won't believe what your people are doing. The ones you brought out of Egypt. They're acting just like you, is what he's saying here in the moment. Quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, and they made themselves a molded image. It's interesting that the scripture, the Holy Spirit, records over and over again that Aaron was a liar, right? It was a molded calf. They cast a mold. What did Aaron say? No idea what happened. We threw the gold in the fire and the cow just came out. It was insane. Right? Isn't this the way we act with our sin? I have no idea what happened. You know, raise three daughters. You come home and the lamps all smash. What happened here? No one knows. No one has any idea. Or they'll tell you nothing happened. You know, because lamps just get depressed sometimes and leap right off from the end stand and destroy themselves. It happens. It happens. It was a molded calf. Oh, we paint ourselves in the best light, do we not? We always try to make it sound better than it was, even, even if it's just less horrible. Right? <laughs> just curve the story a little bit. That's exactly what it's a molded image the Holy Spirit records. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, indeed they are stiff-necked people. Let me alone. Get out of the way, is what the Lord is saying, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. You have to really understand how dramatic a statement that is, right? You read the book of Revelation and God says there, you want to obey me, I'm paraphrasing, or I will blot your name out of the book of life. Then you turn to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and it says that the one whose name is written in the book of life will not be sent to hell. So here, when we're reading that their name could be blotted out of the book of life, it's literally you have to experience the second death hell. It's an eternal judgment that is just get out of the way and let me blot them out. Moses is interceding for them. Blot out their name from under heaven. I will make you a nation mightier and greater than that than they. I, uh, it's been pointed out, and I think I agree with the concept. Moses recorded that he was the most humble man in all of the world at the time. He wrote that with his own hand, so sometimes you have to wrestle with that concept. When someone declares themselves as being humble, you have to question their humility in the moment. But he was just offered by God the opportunity to replace the entire nation of Israel. Started out with Abraham. Things didn't work out. These are really rebellious people. Let's just erase the previous program and I'll take you, Moses, and we'll start over. That's pretty flattering. Many of us might be inclined to think that that is a good plan. I am clearly much better than all of they. If you would just have started with me, we might not be in the circumstances we're currently in. 
And what we see is Moses' weakness and his failures shine through as much as anyone else. Verse 15, so I turned and came down from the mount, and the mountain burned with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made for yourselves a molded calf. There it is again. It was molded. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes and fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I, I interceded on your behalf. That is the character of God, right? Jesus Christ is our intercessor constantly pleads before the Lord. That's one of the things you do need to do, right? When you hear Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. The measure by which you measure it out will be measured back to you. You know, our culture says, yeah, yeah, so don't judge anybody. But then you drop down to verse 15, and Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 5, same passage, right? Judge not. Then you get to verse 15, and he says, you will know the false teachers by their works. See, when Jesus said, judge not, he was talking about administering physical punishment. That, that is what the Pharisees did, right? They caught the woman in the act of adultery. They dragged her down into the street, and they're going to stone her to death. They're going to pass judgment upon her. This is the judge not Jesus is talking about. He does not say, do not use your discernment. That's not what he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Verse 15, he said, you will know the false teachers. And he goes through a list of things, the summary of which is, you'll know them by their fruits. Whether they produce good or evil, you'll be able to tell the false teachers by their fruits. So many that are televangelists are very easy to see. Not just because they're on television, not just because they're begging for money. You watch over time and their behaviors are exposed. They get caught for this. They get busted for that. They're held accountable for this. They're held accountable for that. It's such a disgrace to see those who declare themselves to be the ministers of God behaving in such vile and sinful and wicked ways. There's no reason to sit around... Once you've discovered that and think to yourself, well, were they someone that is good and that I should follow and contribute to their ministry? As soon as you've recognized that, you can just cut yourself off from it. No, no, no reason to share in their sin. If they, if they are going to be that sinful, that's between them and the Lord. You don't have to be led astray by them, the great wickedness that can be seen. So he has fallen down before the Lord, and then he's gone through this process because of the wickedness that they had committed in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, for it was for I was afraid, verse of 19, of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at 
that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. And he also made them drink of it, and then they put to death everyone who had followed that sinful example. Also at Tebera and Mesa, Kidrath Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Now, these occasions that are being spoken of here involve a couple different things. The first one involves the fact that they began to complain against the Lord. So complaint is the first failure. They recognize they're in a wilderness. They recognize we're going to be in need out here. And they just immediately launch into accusations against God. He's brought us out here to destroy us, is their accusation. The next occasion referred to is their need for water, right? And what do they say of God? Again, it's a complaint, but now there's a legitimate need attached and they complain against God and they're saying you're going to cause us to die of thirst. And then lastly, it says that there's a mixed multitude amongst them, right? Because many of the people who left out of Egypt with them were Egyptians. They, they weren't all Jewish who came on this journey. Many of the Egyptians came with them. And that mixed multitude of mixed blood, don't understand God to be racist. It had to do with their religion, right? The, the false gods they worship. They're complaining against God and saying, look, yeah, he's given us water. Yeah, he's given us manna, but we don't have any meat. And they complain because they want meat, right? Some of you remember the, the you know, added accusation of they don't have any spices, right? That's that's all that's always, you know, wise to complain when God is providing you that, you know, yes, he's providing for me, but if only it had been a little more spicy. You know, garlic and onions would have made this so much better. You have what you need, but your complaint is you don't have what you want. Th think about those accusations, right? Distrust of God and then complaining about what our real needs but accusing God of not having any provision prepared for that, and then when he makes provision for you, complaining because it's not what you desire. There's a lot to be considered in all of that. I'll give you two verses to consider from the New Testament Jesus teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, right? You don't need the leeks and the onions of the world. You don't need the garlic and the spiciness of the world, right? People will say to me very often, you know, try to read my Bible, but I just, it's so bland. It may be bland. It may be bland. It may be bland for days. I can guarantee you, if you will take it in and you will forcibly hang on to it, you will find that it does sustain you. You will find that it does take care of you. 
In fact, those mornings where you open the book and it just sort of says blah right back at you. If you will forcibly drag a few verses out of that passage and hang on to them, you'll find that those are the days that they're far more useful to you than any other. I'll guarantee that. But God's word, what? Doesn't return void, right? If we'll hang on to it. Consider also that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, a verse you should all know, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You look around at times and what? the circumstances are telling you are lies, right? You, you look at the circumstance and all you see is overwhelming, right? Completely hopeless. No answer here. If you will be still and know that he is God, listen for his voice, you'll hear what you need to hear. You may not see what you need to see or you want to see, but you'll hear what you need to hear and you'll be able to live by it, right? I'll point out again, Romans 10, 17 tells us, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, hearing the word of God. Our circumstances will tell us all kinds of lies and you'll turn around and God's provision will be right there. Uh, again, I, I need to remind us, right? The millions of tons of food that has to arrive every day for the nation of Israel. When we hear they, they went out and got manna every day, you're talking about millions of tons of food. Millions of gallons of water. This isn't just Moses hits the rock and you know somebody turns the garden hose on. And everybody just gets in line and, you know, gets their drink. There's two million plus people and all of their cattle and their livestock that need water. There needs to be a river running through this camp continuously. Jesus promised a river of living water, right? And the New Testament tells us of this flowing water that came from the rock, that it was Jesus that provided that water. We need to be people who trust the Lord, not our circumstances. So consider. Now, here, verse 23, Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land. This is the first time which I have given you. I have given it to you. They arrive here 40 years later and discover from Rahab the harlot that everyone inside Jericho was petrified. As soon as they left out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, they were filled with terror at the coming of the Egyptians and they wait 40 years until they finally arrive. God has told them, I have given this to you. Go up and possess the land which I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Not because of your righteousness. That's not why you're going in to conquer these people. Because you are a rebellious, idolatrous, stiff-necked people. That's who you are. It's difficult to hear these kinds of accusations. Thus, 
I prostrated myself, Moses is saying, before the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights. I kept prostrating myself before the Lord and said he, the Lord that had said he would destroy it. Therefore, I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on the wickedness of their sins. I just before we read on, I want to point something out. It's not as though Moses is saying these things to God and God is mid-stroke ready to hit these people and he's realizing, oh, you're right. Thanks, Moses. I, I, I was almost about to do a bad thing. And you reminded me of the past and the promises that I made. Thank you so much. Right? I guarantee you that Moses reviewing these promises is more for Moses than anything else. We have to remind ourselves what the Lord has said. Amen? You have to search the scriptures and see his promises again in order to ground yourself in them. This is more for the people of Israel. We've talked about how the Lord said in previous chapters, I tested you, not so that the Lord would find out what was going on in their hearts, so that they would find out what was going on in their hearts. No, isn't it startling when we fail? Okay, it's startling for me. You guys are way better off. I appreciate that. I think I'm so awesome. And then the moment comes, and I act so childish. And just moments later, I'm ashamed of myself. My wife, you know, helps with that conviction, but, you know, faithfully to remind me of the faithfulness of the Lord, like Moses did the nation of Israel. And we discover what's within ourselves. God knew all the time, and we were deceiving ourselves. And God says, okay, let's put him under pressure. Let's crack him open so he can see what's actually in his heart. We need to continuously allow the Lord to set us straight. Verse 28, lest the land from which you brought us should say, the people, Egypt, and those that saw Israel go out. Lest they say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them. He has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. God is not going to defy his own character. It won't happen. We can. We can, through doubt, we can allow ourselves to defame the name of the Lord. Honestly, the Lord's name is never defamed, right? Because if we were in submission to us to him, then he would have carried us through the circumstances. It's the fact that we don't. Uh, how, how often we forget, right, that Doubt is the exact opposite of faith. It's so simple. We begin to doubt the Lord, and yet we want, we want the benefits of faith, right? We want all that the Lord has promised, all that the Lord has 
provided, all that the Lord will do, and yet we doubt. If you can recognize the doubt within your own heart, just automatically know you're in the wrong spot. You're in the wrong frame of mind. Because that's not generated from the Lord, right? <laughs> the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, right? But of love and a sound mind and right, the strength that comes with it. I'll remind us again. I'll try, I'll try to close. This is my first of five closings. I'll try to remind us, right? We often say, we quote the prophet and we say, right, the joy of the Lord uh, will be my strength. And I've pointed out to us many times, we, we often think that what that verse means, and, and you can do the word study and get your Greek lexicon out and, and look at that on your own. Uh, we, we think of it, as meaning that uh, you know the the Lord will provide us with joy, and that in the process it will make us strong. Well, listen, have there not been many many times in your life where there was little or no joy, and yet what was most needed in that moment? Strength, right? What that passage actually says, real deal, is that if we will be strong, it fills our God with joy. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. We need to be strong, especially as we see the world going. Like, like if that is so contradictory to you, you've, you've heard that taught the other way so often, Right? Th think about that. You do the study on your own and discover that what I'm saying to you is the absolute truth. We, we've been taught that so incorrectly that we sit around going, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the Lord to fill me with joy. Until then, I'm powerless. I've got no strength. I'm over here getting crushed. Why? Because I, I, I'm joyless. If God would just pour his... Think about this. Do we not think this way? Right? If God would just do the good thing, I'd be so happy that I'd be able to charge out the door in the strength that I want. And that's not what the passage is saying at all. It's when the circumstances are crushing you and you lace up your boots and stand up, grit your teeth, and charge out into the problem that the Lord is applauding the circumstances and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. His heart is filled with joy in those moments, right? Think about, right, Paul and Silas. I said it was the first of five closings. Think about Paul and Silas, right? Brutally imprisoned. And what are they doing? Singing their hearts out. Singing their hearts out. And I'm sure, right, I'm sure it wasn't, wow, I'm just so filled with joy right now, I can't help but sing. <laughs> it probably was a great discussion back and forth about, this stinks. This is horrible. I cannot believe this is not what I expected in these circumstances. And they finally had to say to one another, you know what? We keep thinking like this, and it's just going to be black despair. You know what song? Do you know a song? I don't know. So what song should we sing, right? And they start singing, and the earthquake and the chains fall off, and they're set free. 
Let the Lord be blessed in your strength. Move forward, right? Conquer the things in your life that need to go. It will speak volumes. Speak volumes to the people around you as they witness God working in your life. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll get into 10, take another hour or so. No, okay, let's stand and we'll pray. Father, you are good. So good to us. Bless us, Lord. Speak to each of our hearts this morning. Help us to trust you. Lord, we we have to painfully admit that a lot of the time we are a faithless people. We put on a good show, but internally our hearts are weak. Life is difficult. Help us to keep our faces focused on you, looking to you, asking of you. Accomplish the work you want to in our hearts, our minds, our lives, and with our behavior. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open those doors of opportunity that we would step through and invite people into your kingdom. Lord, we want to be evangelists. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done in the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.